Today we're going to talk about a really, really serious matter. Um, Christ says, I thirst, and it is finished. Two things that he says, and it is finished is obviously uh, going to lead to his death. So having never hung on a cross, having never have died, I don't have a story, a personal story that goes along with this. Um, but I thought I'd let the, the word speak for us. Matthew 27, 5 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Next gospel, Mark 15, 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke 23, and 4, 23 46, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And after saying this, he breathed his last. So Matthew had a loud voice, Mark uttered a loud cry, and Luke saying this. But it is in John that we have the most complete record of what it is that Jesus said. There's no reason to doubt what happened. It's well documented in all four Gospels. Jesus spoke, and he died. So much more happened. But we want to look at his last words, five of them, before his death, and find meaning in them for all of us. They are, I thirst, and it is finished. Before I pray, let me read the passage. After the, or this, I'm sorry, I'm going to read uh, John 19, 28, and I'm going to go all the way through 33, even though our sermon will be 28 to 30. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there as they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would re not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Let's pray. Lord God, give us some clear understanding of what is happening in this passage. Give us an application that we can live our lives by. I pray that you would take any error that I had in preparation and remove it. If you need to cut off the mic, do that to keep me from uttering wrong words. Lord, you're a fantastic God who cares for his children. We claim that as your children, that you will care for us in how you let us read and look at this passage and understand the full depth of what you had in mind. We can't search your mind to the depths of the ways that you think, but we can see what you say in your word, and we have the Spirit to help us guide it. So do that for us today. In the name of Christ, amen. So I read all the way through 33 just to emphasize that Jesus died. You know, they didn't have to break his legs because he was already dead. 
So it's a significant part of what happened on the cross. The other significant thing is that he suffered. The penalty of sin was not just death, but also the, the high cost, the suffering that happens in our lives as well. I mean, I'm sure you've been there where you've experienced sin and, and prior to repentance, all kinds of consequences came from it, and usually painful ones. Uh, so it's, it's not unusual to, to be thinking in terms of, of that's what's happening. And, and that suffering had to be done as a man for Jesus to do it. So my subject, subject sentence here, what I really want to cut across is Jesus completes his work as son of man and as son of God. I'll say it again. Jesus completes his work as son of man and as son of God. So the work was done both in his humanity and his deity. And we have two key areas that we can look when Jesus says, I thirst, and when he says, it is finished. We'll separate those, though they belong together. We'll separate them just for the course of study. So the, the first is the the purposes of the, the thirst. Jesus' own words, according to John 4.14, 4, you probably know this, there, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. How interesting that Jesus would say that, and yet he's the one that says, I thirst. There's a depth there that I'm not going to explore, but it, it introduces the idea that the Bible offers attention frequently. You know, son of man, son of God is a bit of attention. In fact, uh, Pastor Ben, many of you know, he, he would frequently remind me, and he'd say something like, there's a tension in the Bible. And I, I kept thinking, he's telling me to pay attention. <laughs> there's a tension in the Bible. Of course I pay attention to the Bible. But he was speaking of this tension. It exists in, in many ways. Um, you know, there's, there's prophecy and there's, there's action. So the, the thing that happens in its time has its purpose. But in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you get to see these foreshadows and these prophecies. So two things are happening at once. You have the actual act and its meaning for the moment, and then you have this prophecy and the foreshadow of what we know looking back. And you have the Son of Man and the Son of God, both God and man at the same time. The Bible's got that a lot. So here we have thirst and living water. I think the thing is to accept the tension. Sure, let the Spirit help you explore it, but just accept you don't have to fight it. You don't have to say, oh, the Bible's contradicting itself or something silly like that. Okay, so even in small little things, the way you accept the word is the way you accept Christ in faith. And I have four points about these words, I thirst. They are prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is fully man. His awareness of the end and that he takes a drink. So we'll start with prophecy fulfilled. In verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. There's an admission of completeness that I think is different in this couple of verses than it is what you're going to see in verse 30, where he says, it is finished. So he, now he, he knows that all is now finished, and he's going to claim it is finished. And, and I'll explain the separation here in a minute. The opening words of after this connects knowing what was now finished to what it is that he's speaking of at the time. And I, I think he is speaking of his earthly ministry. Uh, the, the previous actions of caring for loved ones, present individuals that are present at the cross, um, with telling John that Mary's now your mom, take care of her. You know, that, that acting, I think Tim was preaching on that one, the, the love that is presented at the cross, and, um, and, and really everything that he was doing for his disciples, I think would be on that list. His earthly ministry would be on the list of knowing now that all was finished. Primarily, though, the ones he was close to the most, his disciples. John adds that the words, I thirst, were to fulfill Scripture. This is more than just scriptural evidence of who Jesus is, although it is that. It is also the way that Jesus led his life. You know, he was, he was always doing the Father's will. And to help us believe that, he would tell us his Father's words as he did them. And it made it very clear. You know, examples are, are Luke 2.49. He was not trying to disrespect Mary or Joseph. Uh, and when they asked him, where have you been? Uh, he said, did you not know I must be in my father's house? It was the first announcement, so to speak, of I am going to do my father's will. In Matthew 4, when Satan was tempting Jesus, he tried to test, tempt him with, with hunger. And what did Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy 8.5, man does not live by bread alone. And at the same temptation, Jesus tried a trick. He goes, well, let me use God's words. And Jesus, knowing better, he corrected Satan with Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So always depending on God's word. At the end of the parable of the wicked tenants that you can see in Luke 20, 9 through 17, he's speaking to the Pharisees, pointing out their hypocrisy, pointing out that they were trying to judge him. And he said, uh, he, he quoted the words of um, Matthew, or excuse me, from Matthew 26. No, I got lost. I'm sorry. <laughs> he quoted the words of Psalm 118, 22. And that was the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Always depending on God's word to support what he was up to. And now from Matthew 26, 31, after what has become known as the Last Supper and heading to Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples they would fall away. And he quoted the words of Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So here at the very end, it's not surprising that Jesus brought people back to the word of God for his point and purpose to be known. I thirst. 
In fact, I do. If you'll excuse me for a moment. <laughs> I meant to bring this up there. This, this could be a visual of... wasn't intended to be that way, but I'll turn it into that. So what scripture was it that Jesus fulfilled by saying, I thirst? I have two, but there doesn't have to be a decision about which is the right one. And reading commentaries, people that write those things love to argue about those things. Oh, it meant this, or it should be this one, it should be that one. And I say, yes, it should be those. You don't have to choose uh, between scriptures to say that, yeah, this one identifies. This is what John was talking about when he wrote it down. This is what was on Jesus' mind. It could easily be both. In fact, there's over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' life. A fellow named uh, Jonathan Bernese puts the number at 324. I, I couldn't accept that. I, it's probably more. I don't know, though. Uh, either way, it's a heck of a lot. And nobody says, well, we're only going to look at one. So I say the same thing here. Uh, the, the two passages that he could be quoting, or he is, uh, are Psalm 2215 and Psalm 6921. I'll read both because I think they both apply and they both point to this moment uh, of thirst. Psalm 2215 John, last week, Hanson um, spent a little bit of time in Psalm 22. So I won't go to the depth that he did, but I'll just show or try to, to point to a thirst in these words. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Sounds like a thirsty man. Sounds like cotton mouth. Sounds like what I just had there. I don't know. The other one is um, Psalm 69, verse 21. And this one, boy, it sure sounds exactly like this passage. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Amen. That's certainly here. But again, I don't separate those two and say one's right over the other. I just say yes, amen. Let's move to Jesus fully man, second point. Thirst is absolutely a part of crucifixion, physically. Uh, we should never forget the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross. It is clearly something he did as a man, a perfect man, but yet a man. It does not mean he lost his deity. More of a, one of these things that's hard to explain but more of a setting it aside to perform what he has been sent by the Father to do. Uh, in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, it reads, Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this in mind, or have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, Christ, on a cross. You know, when we, when we try to be thematic in our services, it's typical that the person preaching doesn't know what the person praying is going to be working on, but I'm always encouraged when it turns out we're quoting each other. You know, the message from, from prayer. The prayer isn't intended to be a teaching moment, but it does. And it's so natural for the Spirit to bring two people who haven't spoken about this in advance to the exact same place when it's the same place. It's not the passage we're actually studying. It just, the, the Word lends itself to itself. Um, thank you, Jordan. Also in Hebrews 2, 6 through 7, about this emptying himself and becoming man. Um, it, is, it, it reads, it has been testified somewhere, and I can tell you that somewhere is Psalm 8, 5, uh, but it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, Lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor. So we have ample evidence of ways that Jesus had the same emotional and physical characteristics of, dare I say, common man. Uh, anything but common, as he was perfect. He incre in, in other examples, he increased in stature. That's from Luke 2.52. As a man, he asked questions, as though he didn't know everything, Luke 2.7. He wept, John 11.35. He marveled, Mark 6.6. 6. He slept, Mark 4.3. He groaned, John 11.33. Do we not do these same things? Is that not part of our lives? Do we not see that these are here for the purpose of showing us that, yeah, he is like you and me. He has to suffer as man on a cross if he's going to be substituting for us. And in our passage, he thirsts. Thirst is not part of heaven. Sounds like a bold statement, but Revelation 7.12, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. So this thirst thing is certainly a human trait. We can keep Jesus, Son of Man, in mind when we get to looking at his deity in the words it is finished that are coming up in verse 30. So just kind of hold a, a little bookmark on that thought. And then we move to the awareness of the end. Jesus was closing the book on his earthly ministry. He knew this was the end. He was sure of it. And isn't it true, don't you find that as a follower of anybody that you want to know the person you're following is sure about where he's leading you? It, it's what works. It's what makes a leader. They have a confidence in where they're going. Conversely, if you see confusion in your leader, 
It introduces doubt. You're not sure you want to be following the person. Sometimes you do anyway, um, maybe in a mini version of faith, because the person's got enough experience that, yeah, you've seen him in tough times before, and he seems to be confused, but he's the sort who will work it out on the fly and will be okay, we're going to follow him. But the main thing is we need sureness. And I think that's what Jesus is offering here. And Jesus, knowing that all was now finished in his earthly ministry, his care for his disciples completed, his knowing this sets up his people to also know their care was completed. Okay, so they see not only is Jesus taking care of his mother, taking care of John, other disciples, we can take this as pointing to he's going to care for us. And then, so what's he do? He thirsts, so he drinks. And he drinks from a jar of sour wine. In verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. I think it's another interesting thing that John does, that he records that the sponge is connected to a hyssop branch. Other... Um, of the Gospels, just mentioned it's a reed or something like that. And again, commentaries, I don't know if they're right. This one seems legit. John is physically closer, and he can see that it was a hyssop branch. I mean, this would be the theory or an explanation. And other accounts maybe don't have such detail and, and don't know exactly what the branch is. Uh, I don't think that's real important, but but I do think that John isn't going to miss the moment. He sees the hyssop branch. His mind must be called back to Passover. You know, where there's blood on the doorpost and, and the angel of death is going to pass over those places that have the sign of blood. That blood was put on those posts with a hyssop branch. Very close connection to what's going to get passed over. Our death is passed over by the work on the cross. Didn't deserve it. Not an action that we did. We didn't even have to put blood on a doorpost, but we did have to accept the blood on the cross. So Jesus did accept this drink. And this is not the same wine that was offered earlier that was mixed with gall, or, or sometimes it says myrrh, and which was a sedative was going to comfort Jesus while he was on the cross, and Jesus would have nothing to do with that drink because he knew that suffering was part of the penalty, and he had to do this. It was mostly water mixed with a little bit of sour wine, a thirst quencher, which I could understand, having had plenty of lousy wine, uh, that, that it does do something different than water. Water, you almost have to, to chug it to quench your thirst. This was just a need to loosen his tongue, to pull his tongue from the roof of his mouth. You know, the soldiers that probably had this jug of wine or sour wine with them were going to use it for the same purposes. If they just had a bunch of water, they'd probably kill it way too early. Having a long duty in mind, they could just take little sips of this. It would quench their thirst 
and, and allow them to perform their duty. And for a very long period of time, it would last. So he, he drinks this sour wine. Uh, and I, I agree with one commentator that the, the sole purpose was so he could give a triumphant cry. If, like when I started, I wasn't going to be able to finish without that little sip of water because I had the cotton mouth thing going on. Imagine that times a hundred that you just, you can't get the tongue off the roof of your mouth because it's so parched. And by taking this drink, he can now proclaim, it is finished! And he could say it with a loud voice as we saw in the other Gospels. Jesus said with a loud voice, it is finished. So it's, it's very necessary for him to drink to satisfy or quench his thirst. And that leads us into our second section, the it is finished portion. And like I said, these are very triumphant words, not words of defeat, like, oh, man, this is finished. I'm going to bow my head. This is terrible. It's, it's finished. I've done it. If any of you have ever run a long race, sometimes you are just satisfied that you finished not that you came in first or even placed or beat your own personal record, but you just are so happy it's over, it's finished. There's only one word in the Greek, it's teleo, but there's three words in our language. Each has their own significance. It is finished. So let's take them one at a time. First, it. What's the it? There's a difference between the it and the one that is finished in verse 28. I claim that finished in verse 28 was Christ's care for the disciples. The it being finished here is much larger than that. It is bigger. It is as large as the sum of everything from the fall in Genesis to this moment on the cross. Everything is finished. He has completed it all. Everything that God had planned, allowed, culminating in this moment in time that has become everlasting, it is that large. It is also narrow. As big as all that is, at the same time, another one of these tensions that we just have to accept, it's that big. It's finished. Everything that preceded his time on the cross is completed. But at the same time, it's as narrow as him finishing propitiation for the sins of mankind, paying the price for our sins. That's the real dial-it-in purpose that is also finished. The inherited sin of Adam and the sins committed by even us today in action and thought, they're all covered. That's a big it. And again, it is a substitutionary price of sin, the wages of sin, which is death, being paid. And then is... This is the one I ended up most excited by. We don't read 
it might be finished, nor it will be finished. Not, well, under these conditions, it could be finished. Just the factual is. It is finished. In math, it's the equal sign. Two plus two equals four. That same simple equation is often even said as two and two is four. It just is. That's what it is. It's a surety. It's a certain clarity that we gather. What I said earlier, as followers, we can only be sure when our leader is sure. That just got ramped up. In fact, we could see everything in verses 28 and 29 are exponentially larger in verse 30. And why would that be? Because Jesus made it that way. He enlarged it. He took it from words for his disciples that we see in 28 and 29 to now it's words for all the world. For God so loved the world. Weren't specific individuals. It's the world. It wasn't just his disciples. It's the world. This price is paid for all. Accepting or not, it paid the price. And then finished. So when is something finished? When is something through, completed, terminated, ended, concluded, closed? You think I can go any further? Watch this. Consummated, finalized, crowned, capped, brought to fruition. And it keeps going. Accomplished, perfected, achieved, attained, done. Okay, I'm finished. That's the point. There comes an end to something that's not necessarily the end. Christ finished what his father had planned from the start. He fully took on the it and made it is. He did this in a different way than all the foreshadows. He died once for all. The animal sacrifices that were insufficient were finished. A need for a scapegoat is finished. But this finish isn't like a finished movie that fades to black. A better analogy might be running a race. When a runner crosses the finish line, she, in a sense, is finished. She has completed the course. She has probably finished physically, unable to perform the same race at the same standard that she just did. If so, she didn't run the race well, put everything into it, as did Jesus. And so it is with Christ. Finish doesn't necessarily mean everything is done. The task is done. The assignment is done. For Christ, it means his assignment on the cross and all the implications is completed. The ramifications are just getting started. Something else is finished. Christ's suffering. Hallelujah to that. Our suffering Savior does not suffer continuously. You know what's not finished? 
Christ's ministry. Christ isn't finished in us. He is not finished loving and ruling over his church, something we could be very happy about with the absence of Pastor Tim. You think I had a few synonyms for finished? I couldn't list in a hundred pages all the ways that Christ isn't finished. We need only look into his word and we'll see how he's not finished. So let's move into the application. I said they're important words. I thirst. He's the son of man. He is us. He's, he's paying the price for us, but he had to do so as man. But it didn't remove his deity. I also said that he's son of God. So it is finished can mean a few things, but the, the clear application, his death on the cross as a man, his victory as God, it means a big thing to us. It's salvation. It's a very, very high-priced gift that the giver willingly paid. Accept the penalty. You deserve for your sins, or what you deserve for your sins, are now paid. I mean, when I rack up, which is on a daily basis, the sins I have committed, if I think if I had to pay for all of those, even a couple of those, or just one of those, there'd be a lot of suffering, and there would be death. In fact, I suppose at one time before accepting Christ, I lived in a death. I lived bound to that sin, bound to the penalty. And now I don't, because I accepted the free gift of God. It's not just a mental notion of accepting the offer. It's not like a transaction at the store, you give them your credit card, I used to say you give them your cash, but it's plastic now. And then they ask you, pass plastic or paper. Uh, it's... It, it's that too. It is a transaction. So don't, don't let it confuse you that I said it's, it's more than that. More means, yes, it is that. But it's also something else. It's, it's accepting everything that has happened to do that. That's what we want to accept. We want to accept that he suffered for us, not just that he died for us. We want to accept that he even lived for us, that he became son of man for us. That he, for a little while, considered himself lower than angels. Believe might be the better word. We need to believe it. But I think even that comes up short, short of the fullness of which we are to accept it. We have to accept it into our hearts. Accept it to the point of changing your life. Repent from past ways. Turn to the ways of a life offered by Christ. No longer be ruled by sin. No longer own spiritual death. That's what accepting is. It's a full body and mind experience. Every emotion, everything we were built with has to jump in on this. It's all in. Push your chips to the middle. John says it perfectly well in the purpose for writing his book. John 20, verses 30 and 31, and it's in your notes. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that but believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, I pray we live in the fullness of the sacrifice you made, that you made as Son of Man. Suffering as the cost of sin is great, finishing as Son of God, what no man could do. Lord, your offer of everlasting life is gracious, and to turn it down would make that suffering pointless for the individual. Surely, Lord, you know there are those that won't accept your offer. We pray it is not true, but alas, it likely will be. Only you judge and know for sure their penalty. So let us pray that the joy you know in those who do turn to you from their sin is immensely greater than the sorrow of the lost. Be with us, your church, as we make all efforts to glorify us and you are glorified in what you do, what you do in us. Also, Lord, be glorified in everything, but especially in us. Amen.